Well, good morning, Alberta Baptist Church. Um, I'm glad to be with you here again um, and us opening up, if you're not already there, ahead of me to Romans chapter 12 again. And uh, I am very excited um, about the word that the Lord has um, placed before us today. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look over at the last um, 21 verses um, before we come up to Advent. And um, we've looked at chapter 12, verse 1 and, tw- and verse 2. And how last or two weeks ago, uh, as we looked at verse 1, it commands us to consider the mercies of God. Um, And when we do this, the only reasonable response is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. Um, Last week, Kyle did an excellent job walking us through Romans 12, 2, which tells us that we are to not actively or passively be conforming to the pattern of this world, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can discern what is God's acceptable and good and perfect will for us, his will of desire, as Kyle um, laid out for us, that this is what God has designed and what he desires for us. And so in light of these verses, um, which really gives a picture of a right understanding of our relationship with God, um, Romans 12, 3 that we're going to be looking at today is going to shift us into a section of right understanding about ourselves. And so we're going to um, open, I'm going to read the first three verses of Romans chapter 12. You can remain seated this morning. Um, I'm going to pray and we're going to, we're going to dive right in, y'all. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And this is the word, of the, the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for it. Let's pray. Father, we are truly amazed by your mercy and grace. God, help us as we look into your word to allow it to examine our hearts um, in, their, in the deepest, darkest corners of them. Uh, Lord, and expose what needs to be surrendered to you. God, over these next few minutes, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in my house, we watch a lot of Toy Story. Uh, My 18-month-old son, Roland, our 18-month-old son, Roland, um, loves all four of the movies. They are his jam. Um, he doesn't care which one it is. He just wants one of them on every time he has the opportunity to. And so, by the way, did y'all know the first one came out in 1995? Like, that's older than all you college seniors out there for the most part. 
Like, that's crazy, y'all. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track. That's not my point. My point is I watch these movies all the time, and I love them. Um, and I already kind of geek out when it comes to movies about analyzing them. Um, I like to look at them and look at kind of what I call the story behind the story or underneath the story. And so, as you can imagine, um, as I've watched Toy Story more times than I can count over the last several months— I've done this with these movies. And something started to pop out to me about these. And if you haven't ever seen it, you've had a half, I'm sorry, you had a quarter of a century to watch it. That's on you. I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis and just walk us back through it. So the story goes like this. Andy, who is kind of the main human character, you could say, has all these toys. And his toys, his beloved toys, um, of, of all of them, none of them is more beloved to him than his cowboy doll, Woody, right? And so we open up Toy Story, the first one, with, him, with us being introduced to these toys, and we see very quickly Woody is the favorite. Um, he's like, no, guys, it's all good. We're all, we love, Andy loves all of us, all of this. But we see very clearly that Woody is the favorite. And then we're introduced to Buzz, Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger toy. And all of a sudden, Woody's position as favorite seems to be maybe in a little bit of jeopardy. And this causes some conflict between Buzz and Woody. And the rest of the story, basically, um, Woody and Buzz find themselves on this um, unintended adventure trying to get back to Andy. And they end up actually at his destructive neighbor Sid's house, um, who likes to set toys on fire and blow them up and things. And they have got to get out. They've got to escape. They've got to get back to Andy. But the problem is this. Woody doesn't really like Buzz because Buzz is a threat to him. He's a threat to his position with Andy. Buzz really doesn't like Woody because Buzz thinks he's an actual space ranger and Woody is some alien on this planet where his ship has crash landed who is impeding him from his mission. And so they don't work so well together in the beginning. But over time, they start to work together. And they, of course, happy ending because it's a Disney movie. They get back to Andy by working together. But through this, something started to jump out to me. It's pretty obvious probably to most of us that Buzz has a little bit of a misunderstanding about who he is, his actual identity. And he takes great pride in being a space stranger who, as he points at Woody can fly, and he is convinced of this until he has a little bit of a, well, literal fall, and he realizes that he is just a toy. He is just a child's plaything, as Woody so not delicately reminds him. But Woody also has an issue with a little bit of pride, and we see it first in a false humility, but then we see it in this fact of you know what? I don't have to deal with this guy if he's out of the picture. I want to have the top spot with Andy. And anything that jeopardizes that needs to go. Both of them have this pride character flaw. And you're like, why in the world are you telling us all this? Because the verse before us today really examines this issue of pride. And it's an issue that every single human being needs to come to grips with. It's an it's a important thing that each of us needs to see because the mercies of God, when rightly considered, lead us to right living and right thinking, as we've been talking about the last two weeks. Rightly understanding who God is, what he has done, 
what he is doing and what he is yet to do in Christ on our behalf will naturally lead us to a right understanding of who we are and who others are. And so as we look at Romans 12, we can really easily outline the whole chapter like this. Our relationship with God in verses one and two, our relationship with ourselves in verses three through eight, and then our relationship with others in verses nine through 21. So we're getting into the self category today and we'll be in there for the next couple of weeks. And here's what we need to see. All of these, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with others, all have their source, they have their, their origin in God himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is critical to our understanding of Romans 12 and really all of scripture and all of the gospel. So as we look at Romans 12, three today, we come to a third imperative, if you will, of, of Paul. Um, we say, you know, we are shifting not from the theology to the application, but from the indicative of the gospel, what is actually true about the gospel to what that means, the imperative for us who have believed the gospel. And Paul is actually modeling in a way the very thing that he is commanding, in a sense, to the Roman church and to us. He is modeling humility in this. He says in these verses, he says right there in verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. He doesn't say, okay, y'all remember I'm apostle, so I get to tell you what to do. That's not the way Paul does. He appeals again to something that's bigger than him, outside of him. Paul realizes that the only way he has any kind of command over these Christians or over anyone is through the grace of God. And so he is going to encourage them. He's going to press them on into a better understanding of who they are, which means rightly understanding what pride can do in our lives. God's grace determines Paul's command. Nothing inherent about Paul does, okay? And so in light of this, we want to look at these two parts of the command that he's going to give them and then the how section of how this is gonna play out. So the first part of our outline today, which our, this title, the title of this sermon is, um, is Sober Self-Evaluation. Um, and we'll get to more of that as we, as we get on that word sober and how we find it here in the text. But the first part of our outline today is gonna be don't think highly. Don't think highly. And this comes right from the text. Um, it's the negative portion of Paul's command, right? Um, that everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Um, and the Greek word, y'all know I like to geek out. So the Greek word here is tra that's translated think more highly is the word hooperfroneo. And it kind of sounds like the end of it sounds like uh-oh, which is what Roland says all the time. So Kimber liked to purr that out. So I can't read that now without thinking uh-oh. Um, but it is an uh-oh, right? It's, it's overthinking, you could say. It's overthought, exaggerated thought. It goes beyond what is appropriate, Okay, that's, the, that's what he's trying to get. It's where we get the word hyper in our language today that means above and beyond, right? Which is interesting when you think that Buzz wanted to go to infinity and beyond. Anyway, I'm going away from Toy Story. We're done with Toy Story for today. Um, but to go beyond a set standard, which we're gonna come back to that thought here at the end as well, but be, go beyond a set standard of one's thinking about oneself, right? So to overestimate oneself or to think too highly, I'm gonna say as many times as I can, and it all comes down to one word, pride. Pride. When the serpent tempted the first two human beings in the garden, he appealed to pride, which makes sense. Lucifer fell because of pride. 
but he appealed to the pride that was inherent and could be manipulated within the first two human beings. What he said to them essentially was he convinced them that God was holding out on them. God's holding out on you. And by eating the fruit, their eyes would be opened and they would become like God, knowing good and evil. This is what we find in Genesis 3, verse 5. The actions of the first two people show us that in eating the fruit, they thought so highly of themselves that they should be like God. This is the nature of pride. Pride tells us you should be like God. Indeed, you should be God. And we find this all over our culture, but we find it throughout the history from the very first two people, even though God had already created them in his image and likeness, given them everything they could ever need and imagine um, and want in his creation, it wasn't enough when the thought that there could be more out there was presented to them. The lie that there was more out there, the lie that something beyond a perfect relationship with God, their creator, was to be attained. It's so easy for any of us to fall through it. If you go through the narrative scripture, we see even some of the best figures in scripture falling prey to this, that there's something better that we should have. And we deserve to have it, right? We deserve to have it. We follow this and we see that the, this pride, pride is a, it's a spiritual virus, y'all. And it's at a pandemic level. Every single human being has been touched with it, infected with it. It is spread from the first two humans to every other single one of us. The only one ever to be immune was Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why in a very interesting illustration, his blood provides the cure for us. It's only his blood that can cure our pride. So pride and self-importance were at the heart of the first temptation. It was at, also at the temptation of how um, Lucifer tempted Jesus himself in the wilderness. So if Satan would come to Jesus with this, should we dare think he won't come to us with it? Should we dare think, no, nah, pride's not something I'm ever gonna struggle with. Is it not in that very thought, pride lying beneath the surface? Pride has no place in the life of God's people. And throughout scripture, we find warnings against pride and commands, just as in verse three of Romans 12 here, that we are to avoid pride, that we are to reject it. Paul commands, in fact, reminds this of the Corinthians when he's talking about how pride has no place. The Corinthian church, Paul says, you are, you are puffed up with pride. You are puffed up, this idea of a false importance that you've given to yourself. He tells them in, in uh, I'm sorry, in chapter uh, four of first Corinthians verse seven, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything that we have, the mercies of God that we've looked at in Romans chapter 12, the mercies of God must lead us to er not to arrogance and pride, but to adoration and praise. The grace of God must not lead us to boasting of ourselves, but to boasting of the Lord. And the love of God must not lead us to self-centeredness and self-service, but to Christ-centeredness and self-sacrifice. The proper response to who God is and who, and I'm sorry, and what he has done for us in Christ is not thinking of ourselves as high and lifted up, 
but to thanking the one who is forever high and lifted up, Lord our God. But we live in a culture of what I will call consumer-driven happiness. Consumer-driven happiness. And this tells us you deserve blank. Fill in the blank. You deserve to treat yourself. You deserve to have what it, whatever it is that you want. You deserve to have whatever it is that you think will make you happy. And if for some reason it says you are not able to have what you desire to make you happy, yeah, it's probably society's fault or at least someone else's fault or it's God's fault maybe. He, he's holding out on you because there's no possible way it could be your fault or my fault. You're so good. We are so good and deserve, great and deserving of everything that our hearts desires. It's the lie that our culture tells us. We find a much different teaching in the Bible. As I said a few weeks ago, the lie of this world is that there is more satisfaction to be found in God's stuff than in God himself. And that's where pride and desire comes in and it leads us away from our loving father, our loving savior who has given everything for us. If we think too highly or too often of ourselves, of our own comfort or happiness, how are we to present our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God? If we think of ourselves as the world tells us to, how are we to avoid being actively or passively conformed to the world and be able to then be transformed by the renewal of our mind? Being a living sacrifice and having a renewed mind, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 have shown us, takes the focus off of us, off of self, and it places it on Christ and on others. Romans 12, 3 tells us we must reject high-mindedness because it will prevent what God desires for our lives. High-mindedness will prevent what God desires for our lives. And here, I think it's worth noting that there's no mention in these verses of anything regarding thinking too lowly of ourselves. Why might that be? Well, I think, I think for one, throughout the ages, as we have seen, pride, not a lack of it, has really been the plague of humankind since the very first sin that was committed. It is something that creeps into all of our lives at different seasons and in different ways. It is deceitful, it is deceptive, and it will creep into our lives every chance that it possibly gets. And the world will tell us um, to take pride in who we are uh, and to lift it up to the heights of heaven like the Tower of Babel. But the biblical worldview is the one that will constantly and consistently remind us that we are, not too pr- that we are in fact too prideful, not that we have too little pride. In my preparation for this sermon, I came across a blog post. Um, is a blog that a pastor in Idaho um, has. And the title of it caught my attention because it, it really, it shook my, my, my thinking um, as I was preparing for this. And what it said, this, the, the title of it was, How Pride is the Father of Depression. And I, I scratched my head. I couldn't avoid reading it. I, when I saw it, I was like, I've got to see what this is saying. And what I found was something very interesting. And I want to be very clear, just as the author was, let me be very clear up front about this. I nor he are trying to give some kind of uh, one-size-fits-all diagnosis. Depression is a very complex, complicated, and delicate thing that we need to be very 
consistent and very mindful in looking to the Lord for help in. And that can come from a multitude of different places. But when we think about this, um, I'm not trying to make that kind of diagnosis, um, any diagnosis for that matter, um, for you or for anyone that you know. But what I found him writing about this was very intriguing to me. I'm just gonna read a couple of excerpts real quick from his, um, from his blog. He said, left in their sin, people are naked, exposed, ashamed, scrambling for leaves, and thus the need for lots of pretending and wild self-aggrandizing imagination. Pride is a liar and a deceiver, and it tells a tall tale to cover the shame. Pride retells the fall, retells guilt, retells sin, and retells death, renaming these curses as virtues, personality traits, gifts, callings, differences. In the history of the world, the race of Adam, which is at war with God, and his grace is a naked empire. The city of man, as Augustine called it, is more than just an emperor with no clothes. It's an entire empire full of naked, guilty people. And a portion down from that, he goes on to write, but pride is destined to make you sad. Pride is destined to make you despair. This is because apart from Christ, people are losers. Apart from Christ, you are naked, ashamed, guilty, alone. Pride lies and tells a different story. But self-worship, self-love, self-assurance has to look in the mirror. You have to worship your image. And as many people worship the image, they become more and more empty, more and more hopeless. Because look at you, you are a lousy God. Sometimes depression is just self-absorption. Sometimes after people have fallen from their, their lies, after God has thrown down your castle of cards, the pride remains. Sometimes people in the, midst, in, in the most messed up situations with nothing left to hold on to still hold on to pride, still cling to themselves. And then in their darkness and confusion and pain, all that is left is themselves. Again, this is not a one-size-fits-all diagnosis, but I think it does help us to see how pride can creep into our lives in ways that we're not even aware of, in ways that we need to be constantly allowing God's word to reveal to us so that we're not saying, well, I, I certainly don't have pride. I, I am a humble person. And, and to this point, C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this idea greatly in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where the senior demon Screwtape writes to his apprentice, Wormwood. And this is what he says. He says, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us when the, once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt and so on through as many stages as you please. We can, we can make ourselves prideful, but there's a world that makes us prideful, and there's, a, there's an enemy who wants to point us in the direction of pride because it points us away from God. 
We have to be always examining our lives. God, reveal to me, where is pride in my life? Because pride is idolatry of self. And any form that it takes will lead us to worship something other than God. The great reformer John Calvin said this. He said, where God's spirit does not reign, there is no humility and men ever swell with inward pride. We have to constantly be intentional about laying our lives bare before God and allowing the spirit to reign over them. This is the life of the Christian. This is the life that we all truly want, but oftentimes pride gets in the way of us actually having. So first, don't think highly. But second, do think rightly. Y'all like that? Y'all should. Y'all should be impressed with my rhyming abilities. Um, actually, it's just right out of the text, so it's easy. So, um, so after having talked about the negative, after we now all know we're not supposed to be prideful, right? Th- thanks, Jared. I appreciate that. I, I didn't know that before today. Um, well, we can now get on to something maybe that's a little bit more insightful to you because we're going to move into um, how we are supposed to actually think of ourselves. And this is with sober judgment. Um, once again, we find a cognate of this Greek word phreneo, and this time there's a prefix so, so sophreneo had hyper or hyperphreneo. Now we have sophreneo, and this basically just gives the idea of rightness, of sobriety, of it being correct, uh, it being accurate, an accurate assessment of ourselves is what we're getting at here. And Paul paints this picture, um, and I think the word sober judgment um, captures this beautifully because it paints the picture of how pride is intoxicating and will actually blur our vision to how things actually are regarding ourselves. And yet, when we think of things as we should think, which Paul is gonna explain how we can do that, we're actually able to see things as they really are. We're actually able to see ourselves as we really are. And so while we should not become with, overcome with this idea of worthlessness or guilt or shame, there is this element of the gospel that demands we come to grips with our, fin, our sinful state. We can't understand that the gospel is in fact good news until we see the bad news that we are broken, lost, dead in our sins and our trespasses until God breathes life into us by grace through faith. And so when we are able to do this, we see that actually this idea that we're broken is the thing that has to happen for us to be lifted up. This fact that we are brought low in our sin is the reality that we must come to grips with to be brought up in Jesus Christ. And this is why this idea that we can actually fix ourselves, self-help books and ideology that exists today, it will always fail us. We're broken beyond our own ability to repair Only Christ, only his gospel can put us back together again. And so as we we think about this, we have to think about what it is that James 4.10 says, that when we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up. And Jesus says this in the Beatitude when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. 
See, a renewed and transformed mind enables us to rightly understand who we are because we rightly understand whose we are. That by God's love and his grace, our broken relationship with ourself is then restored. And that we are also able to have a restored relationship through Christ with other people. This means that whether we come from an overtly unrighteous background, like Paul described in Romans 1, 18 to 32, which would have been more of the, the Gentile center thought, or if we come from more of the Jewish center thought, which was a self-righteousness that Paul himself um, understood was, was where he was going from, we were all once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. It's the reality of who we are. We have to come to grips with it. But we also are told in Ephesians chapter two, which is one of the great passages of scripture, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it is by grace that we are saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then the famous verses say, verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Pride has no place. And verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul certainly understood that he was a sinner. He referred to himself as the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15, and he referred to himself as the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. And though he had more reasons to boast in the flesh than anyone, he said, I count them all as rubbish. Everything that I've gained counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes through the law, but a righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 though paints the perfect picture of humility. Christ himself. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, humility must be a crucial part of the Christian's life because it was a crucial part of Christ's life. And if the God of the universe came and made himself low, how are we ever to justify trying to lift ourselves high? Jesus taught his disciples to sit at the lowest place at the wedding feast. That way, someone will come and they will tell you, sit at a higher place. Don't assume that you're better than you are. We should not assume that we are greater than we are. We should not assume anything other than the grace that has been given us in Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is that yours and my highest thoughts of ourselves 
can never be greater than what is true about us when we've been born again by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. The way that God thinks of you and me when we are in Christ is greater than the greatest thoughts that you or I ever could come up with about ourselves. And at the same time, Jesus is and forever will be greater than yours or my greatest thoughts of him. This is the way that we properly understand who we are. Christian life demands humility from start to finish. We are saved by grace through Jesus. We are sanctified by grace through his spirit. And one day we will be glorified in the presence of the Father to reign as co-heirs with Christ for all eternity. The last phrase in Romans 12, as we kind of come to a close, says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the way that we don't think highly, but do think rightly, is through the measure of faith that God has assigned. And interpreters essentially come, on, come down on two places on how this should be understood. The first way is this, that God has given each person a different amount of faith. Um, and specifically, this is in, in, in accordance with um, the various spiritual giftings that Paul is gonna talk about in verses four through eight. Um, and thereby, because of this, it enables each person to rightly understand his or her spiritual gifting, um, which has been given by God as he chooses, rather than thinking more highly um, than that person ought to think. The second is though this, the second interpretation would be this, um, that God has given each believer the same standard of faith, which is Christ. And by Christ's one standard, we are all able to rightly understand that we, though many, are, one, in are one, in, one body in Christ and individually members of one another, as Paul says in verse five of, of chapter 12. This then unites us together in Christ and gives us sober judgment regarding our gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, which he mentions in verse, chapter, or verse six. So the issue though with this first interpretation that God has given a different amount of faith to each believer the issue with that is something that we've talked about here at Alberta Baptist before. It is that this places our, it places our faith as central. It indirectly places a right understanding of ourselves on our own faith. And it is true that as we grow in our faith in Christ, we will grow in a right understanding of ourselves. That is, that is absolutely true. However, the foundation of right understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus is not our faith, but it is Christ himself. It is Christ himself. Our faith from start to finish is effectual, not because of its size or strength, but because of its substance, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our standard. He is our metron. That's the word measure here. Uh, and if you take the Greek, it's this standard measurement. And it's Jesus. Nothing can fall short of Christ. Nothing can go beyond him. God has assigned that Christ is to be the lens through which we rightly view God, we rightly view ourselves, we rightly view others, and we rightly view all of life. Christ is to be that lens for us. Therefore, we must understand ourselves based on who Christ is, what he has done, is doing, and is yet to do when he returns. So put more simply to take away from this today, think of it this way. Rightly understanding who we are can only happen by rightly standing under 
who Christ is. Rightly understanding who we are can only happen by rightly standing under who Christ is. When we look at Christ, we look to him in faith, we have no grounds of thinking highly of ourselves. We have nothing to offer him. Charles Spurgeon said, O believer, learn to reject pride, seeing that you have no ground for it. Whatever you, you are, you have nothing to make you proud. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God, and you should not be proud of that which renders you a debtor. Man, Spurgeon had a way with words, right? But on the other hand, we need not undervalue ourselves again because we are those who have been redeemed by the precious, precious blood of Christ. And we've been made to be joint heirs with him for all of eternity. Those sinners, we have been made to be saints. Though orphans, we have been made sons. And to this point, Spurgeon said, it is not humility to underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us. And let it be seen that like freight in a vessel, they tend to sink us low. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Christians are simultaneously people who have nothing to boast of in ourselves, but everything to boast of in Jesus Christ. And boasting in Christ lifts us higher than we could ever hope to lift ourselves. Paul understood this when he talked about his the, the wound that he has, the, the thorn in the flesh given to him as described in 2 Corinthians 12, that he will boast in his weakness for when he is weak, he is made strong. Romans 12 verse three teaches us the only way we can rightly identify our worth and our status is by looking to Christ in faith. Our intellect, our educational degrees, our bank accounts, our careers, our political opinions, our social media following, or the number of likes or comments we get, our possessions, our ethnicity and nationality, our family pedigree or heritage, our popularity, our natural talents, and our developed skills, and anything else that causes us to puff up with pride must be nailed to the cross. Pride is the idolatry of self. And there's no place for it in our lives as Christians. It's been put to get death and we've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. In our world, social media, news media, advertisements, they all try to give us a lens by which we are to view ourselves. But Romans 12, three is also given the lens of Christ, the person and work of Jesus. And only through this lens, we ever rightly see ourselves. There's a great hymn um, that the Gettys wrote. I'm gonna read those words as we kind of wrap up our time today. Because it captures this idea that as we think about not thinking too highly, but thinking rightly about ourselves, that we are simultaneously both more wretched and depraved and sinful than we could ever dare dream we are. And we are also more loved and cherished by God in Jesus Christ than we could ever hope. In the song, the words say this, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, 
but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Today, we all need to allow God's word to illumine our hearts, to illumine where we need to lay aside pride so that we can make a sober self-evaluation of ourselves through the lens of Jesus Christ. So come, allow God to reveal to you what is true in your heart. Allow him to show you areas of pride that you don't even know exist. We all must be diligent in doing this. If you would like to pray with someone as you come, there will be people, we'll be down here uh, able to pray with you and we'll be happy to do that. Perhaps today the Lord is calling you to lay down the pride that you do not need him, that Christ is something for other people who need a crutch. Would you lay aside that pride? Come to Christ today. He will embrace you. And as you lay yourself low, he will lift you high. Let's pray. Father God, what a remarkable thought that though we would seek to lift ourselves high, Lord God, you have made us low when we come to realize our sin, our need for you. And yet, God, when we are humble in doing this, you lift us higher than we could imagine. You set us as co-heirs with your perfect son, Jesus Christ, that we will reign with him for eternity, not based on our own works, but based on his perfect final finished work on the cross and out of the tomb. Lord Jesus, through your spirit, God, would you enable us to see what is true, where there is pride in our lives so that we can humbly come before you Say, there is no place for this. Help me to see myself, Lord, as you see me. Lord, that is what we desire. God, would you help us? We, we need you, Lord. Help us to be able to do this. And God, I thank you in advance for how you are going to answer these prayers of help. God, may you be lifted up as we are lifted up with you. Father, you are good. You are perfect. And we worship your name for it is worthy. It alone is worthy. Praise things in your name.